about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hi everyone, um, please join me if you get out the leaflet uh, that you got on the way in. You'll see our Bible reading printed there. We're reading from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined by fire, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Well, hello again. Um, I remembered the thing I was going to mention, which is that on Uh, Tuesday on Anzac Day, if you're at a loose end and if the weather is fine uh, and you feel like coming and helping me move mulch, there is a whole lot of wood chip mulch that was kind of dumped by the arborist truck and they didn't dump it in the way I'd hoped. So if you feel like a bit of extra manual labour, come and let's move some mulch. Tuesday, I'll, I'll get at it at some time in the morning, I think. There you go. Great offer. Um, I'm going to pray. It actually is a great offer. It's a beautiful space back there. And uh, if, if you come and there's less than three of you, I'll buy your coffee. There you go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible letter, one Peter. Um, as we begin to look at it together now, would you please teach us And teach us of your son and what it means to live in the light of his coming and his coming again. Amen. 
Uh, well, today, if, you be, if, you, if you're here for the first time, it's a great time to be here because today we begin a new series of sermons uh, and Bible readings on one of the true gems of the New Testament, the first letter of Peter, 1 Peter as it's called, 1 Peter. Uh, it, is, it is a letter from the Apostle Peter, Jesus' close and trusted companion, the leader of the disciples who failed Jesus at the end, but who Jesus then restored and reappointed as leader of his people, who became the first leader of the church of Rome, and who later followed his master to execution by the Romans. Tradition has it that he was crucified upside down. This is a letter from him, though he never talks much about himself, actually. Um, and it's written to churches in what it was then called Asia Minor, uh, basically modern Turkey or Turkia, uh, as it's now called. So that very accurate geography there, that bit, basically. The churches in there is where he's writing to, and it was a circular letter uh, meant to be relevant to lots of churches in that area. But First Peter is not just a general letter to all Christians everywhere and every time. No, the Christians Peter writes to, they actually had a lot in common because they shared life in the Roman world. There was a world ruled by Roman power and Roman assumptions in which the figure of the emperor was ever-present. It was a world with slaves and masters, patterns of honour and shame, very different assumptions about men and women and all sorts of things. And these realities of the Roman world are very present in 1 Peter. At the very end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 13, Peter writes this. This is right at the end. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. She who is in Babylon is not some particular woman that everybody in Turkey knew. Uh, it is a code, it's a not-too-complicated code, actually, for the church in Rome. She who is in Babylon means the church in Rome. My church, Peter is saying, the church I lead, sends its greetings, along with Mark, who is probably the author of Mark's Gospel, which is just kind of cool, I think. Um, but Peter calls Rome Babylon because he's making a spiritual point See, Rome, he is saying, is like the Babylon of the Old Testament, the ultimate evil empire, which destroyed Jerusalem and sent the people of Israel into exile, the story is told a number of points in the Old Testament. And that theme of exile is also why Peter calls Rome Babylon, because his image for the churches he's writing to is an image of exile. In verse 1, did you notice he calls them God's elect exiles scattered. The, the, the word for scattered there is literally exiles of the diaspora, which means the dispersion. It was a way of talking about um, the Jewish exiles sent into kind of the wider world. And, and Peter's saying the churches he's writing to are somehow like the, the Jewish people scattered by the power of Babylon. Now we could talk about this for ages and we're going to watch this theme as we go. For now though, I just want to notice that all of this ought to make this letter really interesting for us. You see, Peter was writing to people who were not at home in their world. People who, because of their Christian faith, didn't fit in. 
He was writing to people who felt at odds with the powers that be, with the way the world worked, and the structures of power that kept the cogs moving. And that's something that ought to draw our attention, I think. Because this is the kind of thing that we may increasingly feel as well. I don't want to overestimate this point. It's, it's mostly pretty easy to be a Christian in Australia. Much easier than many, many places around the world. Much easier. But it's not as easy as it used to be. Not that long ago. Christianity and Christian assumptions are no longer respectable in the way that they once were. And Christians increasingly find themselves, at least sometimes, being in a, in a position of being outsiders, strangers. There is a sense of a growing gap between Christianity and the world we're in. And so I reckon this letter is very interesting because what we see in this letter is Peter helping people come to grips with, with, with living in a world with which they were at odds. And he does this not just with a bunch of tips and tricks and political tacti- tactics, but instead with deep theological reflection. This is a letter that aims to form its hearers' sense of themselves in deep ways so that they can live in this situation with conviction and courage, not just reactively, anxiously thrashing about in fear of losing things, but thoughtfully with, we might say, confidence, gentleness and joy, as our vision prayer puts it. So I reckon this letter can really help us. So come with me as we begin to look at it. At the first section, at the opening, where we see Peter speak of three things. They're printed in your outline, the headings. The glory of Christian identity, the joy of Christian hope, and the privilege of Christian knowledge. Let's take them in turn. First, the joy, the glory of Christian identity. In the Roman world, you Uh, normally, almost always, began a letter by identifying yourself and the people you're writing to, the recipients. And Peter does this. He he, he names himself. He says it's from Peter. And then the people he's writing to. But what's striking is the way he names his readers. The way he names his readers. He, He doesn't just say to the churches in these regions. You know, to the churches in Bithynia, Galatia, and so on. He He could have easily said that, but instead he he identifies them, he names them at length and in profound ways. Look what he says. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. What Peter is doing here is he's identifying his readers, his hearers, most of them would have just heard the letter read, in a way that will also teach them something about themselves. He wants them not just to know that this is a letter written to them, but he wants to help them understand who they really are. 
There are two sides to what he says there. On the one hand, he calls them God's elect. They are the objects of God's special choice, his election, his purposeful plan to make of them something magnificent. And this is what he expands in verse 2. Did you notice how he does that? Um, He describes this as the work of the God who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, the Son, sprinkled with his blood. This is the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's what it means for them to be chosen. But on the other hand, Peter names them exiles. Exiles scattered throughout the regions of Pontus and Galatia and so on. An older English version translates this, strangers and aliens. The idea is that they are, they are people who are not at home, who don't belong here, like the Jewish exiles living in, as foreigners in strange lands after Babylon wrecked Jerusalem. Chosen exiles. Elect strangers. That's who I'm writing to, says Peter. That is who you are, Christians. That's who you are, Christians. That's who you are. That's your identity if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Chosen strangers. How do you feel about that? Notice what Peter has done here. He is writing to people wrestling with some kind of experience of dislocation. People whose Christian faith had distanced them from their families and friends and society. It had created difficulties and tension. And his response is not just to downplay this or minimize it. No, his response is to tell them that actually it makes perfect sense because they are exiles. You don't belong here really, says Peter. These places and communities, Pontus, Bithynia, Sydney, Australia, they're not your home, really. But the reason for this, he says, is something magnificent. See, at the same time, he wants to say, this is, this is all because of something magnificent. It is because you belong to God. You belong to his purpose, his pleasure, his glorious plan to form a people for himself, to cover and cleanse an obedient people through the sacrifice of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to get into those terms enough, but they they deserve long attention and meditation. But this is who you are, he says. This is where you belong. And so you're inevitably an exile and a stranger here and now. One of the ways this letter is going to challenge us we see it here right at the beginning, is with how much we have invested in in being at home here, in belonging. We invest a lot. Sometimes, quite literally, we pour money into homes sometimes. But we also invest a great deal of time, energy, labor into fitting in, into being recognized at work among colleagues, friends, and family. 
I think Peter challenges us all to hold that a little more lightly. Because if we have come to Jesus, then we have in fact been chosen for a different purpose, a different belonging that in one way or another will make us strangers here. But only because it is glorious. Glorious. Feel the weight Feel the glory of the way the Bible tells us to understand ourselves here. You see, identity is about the names we accept for ourselves. Identity is about the names we accept for ourselves. And brothers and sisters, do you hear the names you are asked to accept for yourself? Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by his blood. Those are your names. You are entitled to find yourself in those descriptions. We could dwell on this, I think, for a long time and stay with it, but we need to press on because in the second section of our passage, Peter goes on to help us understand what this identity means for life here and now. Now, this is a dense and rich passage, this next section. It's actually all one sentence in Greek, uh, through to verse 12, I think. Um, But I think the best way to take it in is by seeing that its main theme is the joy of Christian hope. Peter wants us to see that the certain goodness of what lies ahead, the certainty and the goodness of what is coming can fill our lives with real joy even in the midst of difficulties here and now. He begins with praise, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter sums up what it means to be a Christian here in terms of new birth into a living hope. And this takes place, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Notice this, won't you? The resurrection is absolutely central to salvation. It's not an afterthought to prove that the cross was quite good. Right? It's... The saving event at this point in Peter. Because it's the, it's the resurrection of Christ from the dead that is the ground of our confidence and salvation. New birth is possible and Christian hope is living because Jesus is really alive. He is the real living future. His boundless life is the key to everything that follows and all the confidence that Peter expresses here. And what he does is he goes on to describe this this future, this living hope in terms of an inheritance, verse 4, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Two things can stop somebody receiving an inheritance. One is if the inheritance itself deteriorates. If in 2005 your inheritance had been invested in uh, high-risk 
mortgage stocks in America, it, it wouldn't have done well as an inheritance. It, 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 it would have, you would have got to it, you know, sometime later and it would have been gone. Um, an inheritance can deteriorate. It can get eaten away and worn down over time. But Peter says, not this inheritance. That cannot happen because this inheritance is as sure and permanent as the life of Jesus. And so it cannot perish, spoil or fade. The Greek is this series of three emphatic terms as if it was, it's almost like saying imperishable, incorruptible, indefatigable, something like that. It, it's not going anywhere, Peter's saying. But the other thing that can stop a person receiving an inheritance is if they fail to reach it, if they don't make it to the moment that they will receive it. But that too, Peter says, won't happen. Because through faith, did you see what he wrote? You are being shielded by God's power. What an incredible phrase. You are being shielded by the power of God. You are being protected so that you will reach the inheritance. That's quite a thought. For now, though, I just want to stay with the sense of confidence we feel here. Peter wants us to be deeply, profoundly confident in what lies ahead of us. The certainty of our inheritance. The coming of the salvation, he says, that is ready to be revealed at the last time. Salvation is it's, it's certain and it's ready and it's going to be revealed. Why? Why is it so certain? Because it is the utterly certain reality and glory of the life of Jesus. And that is the future that is coming towards us. There are a lot of people today who will tell you that the future is very, very bleak. The future is the heat death of the universe as its continued expansion eventually results in thermodynamic equilibrium and energy collapse. Are there any physicists here? No? I don't really understand what that means, to be honest, but that's what I've read. Basically, it means everything keeps getting further apart until entropy doesn't work, and it's just all a cold, dark nothing. It's pretty grim. I mean, the fact that it is a very, very long way off, the heat death of the universe, doesn't stop it being really bleak and put a bit of a question mark over all meaning and purpose and everything. I have no wish and certainly no ability to argue the physics, but the Word of God tells us that we absolutely should not think of the future as bleak. Because the ultimate future is not this. But it is the appearance of the life that has exploded into existence with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this fills life with joy, that future. Look how Peter continues in verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trial. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, 
may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You rejoice, says Peter. You rejoice even though life is hard and full of various griefs and difficulties, for which, which, which was full of for his readers, and it is for us too. But these have come, Peter says, so that when Jesus <clears throat> is revealed, when the glorious future finally arrives, it's going to be full of, of praise and glory and honor because of the incredible preciousness of the thing that marks you as one of Jesus' followers, your faith. Let me say a word about what Peter says about faith here. Um, this is not the moment to explore all the dynamics of faith and suffering and difficulty uh, because there's going to be a lot more time for that as we go through the letter. It's a, it's a main theme of the letter. But do just notice one thing. That again, what Peter says about faith is full of confidence. Right? His point here about faith being tested, his point is not that... If you try really hard, if you really believe and try really hard, then maybe your faith will be proved good enough. That's not what he's saying here at all, is it? No, what he says is that what is going to happen is the unimaginable value of your faith is definitely going to be shown. He wants them to be encouraged. He's saying your faith, your faith. Your small, up-and-down, struggling faith. Let me tell you what's going to happen to that, he says. It's going to be revealed as impossibly precious. Your faith. When Jesus is revealed, your faith will be seen as something of immense worth. A pearl of stupendous price that you would exchange anything for in the end. There is... A real confidence in Peter's words here. That what the trials his readers are going through, and he does not minimize them. He knows them. What those trials are going to do is they're going to reveal something precious. And that's true for you too. But the thing is, the value of faith, the preciousness of faith, is never obvious here and now. It can't be because it is only when the object of faith appears, the thing we have faith in, when Jesus Christ is revealed, Peter says, that its value will finally be clear. It won't be obvious that it was a great idea to trust Jesus until that day. But on that day, there will be no doubt. But now... We can only live in hope of this moment. But that's something. That's something. And this is what Peter describes at the end of this section. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The Christian life is a life of faith, hope, and love. It is a life of faith in and love for the one we hope for, who will be revealed. I love these words, 
And I love the thought of Peter writing them. I said something this about uh, I said something about this in the weekly newsletter this week. But you know, he, Peter had been one of Jesus' closest earthly friends, and yet there is no jealousy in him here, is there? He loves the thought of he loves the thought of others loving Jesus and being filled with the same joy that he knows from knowing Jesus. It would have been so easy, wouldn't it, for Peter to have kind of just, just subtly highlighted the differences between his own relationship and theirs. You love him? Oh, yeah, you, you love him, yeah, but, I mean, it's a bit different, you know, because I actually knew him. You know, this one time when we were camping, you know, Jesus... He doesn't do that. He doesn't do any of that. Actually, what he says is that you love him and it is a true and good love. And even though you don't see him, you share the joy he gives to those who know him. And one day you are going to see him and you are going to reach the goal of your faith. Peter knew, you see, he knew that all Christian existence, his own now as much as anybody's, he knew that it was always hope. Do you, do you have this really deep in you, brothers and sisters, that Christian faith is, is, is not all about or even mainly about what we receive here and now? It is hope. It is a life of love that's looking for fulfillment. It's love for Jesus Christ and the faith that he will come again and that that love will be fulfilled in a way that it isn't now. And the joy of Christian hope is in the end simply that the future is that promise. It is Jesus Christ. It is the promise that we are making our way towards him, our beloved who will save us. It is Jesus Christ and the promise of finally being with him that is our comfort and encouragement now in the midst of struggles. And it is when he and that promise is before our eyes that we will find joy here and now, even in the midst of trials. It is the joy of a promise like kids filled with a thrill at the thought of Christmas. Or parents as they await the birth of a child, or a friend as they look, look forward to a, a yearned-for reunion. Only much, much more. Brother, sister, here is the joy of Christian hope. One day, you will have him. One day you will have him, your beloved, who you do not yet see. Jesus Christ, he is the future. He is your future. His life will be revealed and you will get him. And he will be worth every sacrifice, every loss, every struggle, every disappointment, every endurance, infinitely worth it. That's what you have been given by the mercy of God. Life in the light of that promise. The promise of receiving finally 
Jesus. Praise God. Peter takes one last step in the opening of this letter, which you'll be pleased to hear will take us less time, but it is important to see. He reminds his readers of the privilege of Christian knowledge. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, because he's just spoken of this salvation, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Notice, won't you, the way he describes the work of the prophets, which is the, the writers of the Old Testament, really is what he means. They searched intently with great care, trying to discover it was hard work, this. And what they found, Peter goes on, was that it was all for you. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, verse 12. But you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The prophets of the Old Testament discovered that the salvation they spoke of was ultimately for a people still to come. Actually, you, us. Because the things they spoke of are things that have been fulfilled, announced in the good news about Jesus. They are the things to do with Jesus Christ and the way God's plans have come true in him. Now, this, this short passage has huge significance for understanding and learning to read the Old Testament. But I'm not really going to talk about that. For now, I just want to register a different point that I think Peter intends by saying this right at the beginning of his letter. He wants his readers, his hearers, <clears throat> to see what an amazing privilege it is to be able to learn about what he's been talking about and about what his letter is going to be about, what God has done in Jesus Christ. Even angels, he adds right at the end, even angels long to look into these things. He didn't have to add that, but he did. Now, I don't want to go on about this too long because it's always dreadful when ministers preach about how lucky people are to get to listen to sermons. Especially after, ooh, yeah, this long. But without doing this, I hope you will be struck. I hope you will be struck by the incredible privilege of Christian knowledge. The privilege of learning about the fulfillment of God's purposes in Jesus Christ. The privilege of seeing clearly what the prophets could only see with great difficulty, faintly at a distance. The privilege of looking into things that captivate angels. If anyone needs an incentive to study theology, here it is. If anyone needs a prompt to read and try to understand the Bible. Here it is. If I need an excuse to have preached a bit long... No, it's all right. But you get the point, right? You get the point. Even angels long to look into these things. Isn't it worth more of your time than, oh, I don't know, videos of pandas falling over or the second hour of the Joe Rogan experience? Well, that... That, that was a joke, didn't go very well, but fill in the kind of inane thing you know you spend too much time on. 
I'm happy to hear that nobody's listening to the second hour of Joe Rogan. That's good. Ask yourself, what can I do? What can I do to make the most of this extraordinary privilege of Christian knowledge? I think Peter at least hoped his hearers would want to pay attention to the rest of the letter. That's a good start, isn't it? Let's finish quickly. To be a Christian, Peter teaches us, is to belong to the future. It is to have your identity, your sense of yourself, your love, your heart, your attention, captivated by the one whose salvation is coming, the one who is the salvation that is coming, Jesus Christ. I invite you, friends, as we begin this series and as you hear this word today, to let yourself be drawn again towards this glorious future for which God has chosen us and into which even angels long to look. Let me pray. God of hope and grace and mercy, we praise you for giving us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We praise you for the certainty of that inheritance that lies before us, that inheritance which is your Son, the one we love, who is our salvation. Make the image of his coming And the sureness of that promise, so firm and so fixed in our minds and hearts, that it is a joy, even here and now, in the midst of difficulty, to serve you, to seek obedience, and to long for your appearing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.